You are listening to an episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. We are live and in person recording at the Movement is Life Annual Caucus in Washington, D.C. Two days of health equity champions sharing their insights and experiences with our diverse audience of healthcare stakeholders. My name is Dr. Charlotte Johnson. I'm a registered nurse certified in both informatics and in orthopedic nursing. I'm the system director of nursing informatics at the Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady Health System in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm also the immediate past president of the National Association of Orthopedic Nurses, and I'm honored to serve as the secretary of the board of directors for Movement is Life. According to the Society of Human Resource Management, new diversity, equity, and inclusion-related job openings leapt by over 50% nationally in the aftermath of the nationwide protests that followed the death of George Floyd. And these numbers continued to climb another 50% during 2021. That was an inflection point, and there has definitely been a paradigm shift within organizations in most sectors establishing new leadership roles for diversity and inclusion. Our guests today take DEI up a notch with a workshop titled Jedi Journey, It Is The Way. And Jedi in case stands for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And a workshop explores how Jedi principles can be integrated into healthcare provision through progressive discussions and strategic initiatives at the organization and system levels. Let me welcome our guest. We have Dr. Tanya Jagno. She is the Chief Medical Information Officer, Our Lady of the Lake, and Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine, Pulmonary Critical Care, Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center, Baton Rouge campus. Welcome, Dr. Jagno. Good morning, Charla. It's good to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Dr. Holly Pilsen, she's the Associate Professor of Orthopedic Trauma. She's the Vice Chair of Social Impact, Co-Director of Diversity and Inclusion, Co-Director of Clinical Research at the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Rehabilitation. She's an affiliate faculty of Maya Angelou Center of Health Equity, Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist, and Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome, Dr. Pilsen. Thank you, Dr. Toshin. It's a pleasure to be here. We have Dr. Dathan Sturgis, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, Vice Chair for JEDI, Associate Program Director for Regional Affairs and Academic Affairs, JEDI, MedEx Northwest Physician Assistant Program at the University of Washington School of Medicine and Physician, University of Washington Primary Care in Northgate, Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Dr. Sturgis. Thank you. It's a blessing to be here. So let's go around the table, and I'd like to ask each of our workshop speakers to share with our listeners some of the key points and highlights, some of the take-home messages um, from their talks. And so let's start with you, Dr. Jagno. Thank you, Charla. It's a pleasure to be at the Movement is Life. It's my first experience, and it's been really informative. And you know, I, my opportunity was to speak about social determinants of health. My primary role in my healthcare system is to essentially manage data so that the right information is in the right hands to help take care of our patients. And um, believe it or not, something as simple as asking questions about do you have enough food to eat and putting that in the record and connecting that to the health care plan is challenging. So what we've done at our system is, you know, essentially over four or five years, put that into practice, and I went over the steps that it takes to ask some difficult questions, um, primarily looking into the social determinants of health that we know impact about 80% of our health outcomes, as opposed to the 20% that is what we do in medicine with medical therapy or surgical therapy. 
And so getting that information tracked in our patient database and for each individual patient, and then not only that, but when there is a positive, such as I am food insecure, making sure that we have the resources in the hands of our healthcare providers to refer the patients so that we can not only know about it, but tackle it. And then the final part, which is actually, you know, the, the place where I work and I think is really cool is capturing the data because it tells the story on a grander scale. It tells the story about our community, about the function of our, our health system and how we're doing. And I really would like to see that we're treating social determinants in the same priority that we're treating medical conditions. Things like homelessness, food insecurity, social isolation should be categorized and placed in a level of priority as severe diabetes or chronic kidney disease. And interestingly enough, the presence of the, the first is usually contributing to the latter. And, and so um, I, mean, I think there's great things on the horizon because we're seeing not only community-based organizations start to partner with hospital systems, and excitingly, because the big movement is usually when payers start to recognize the value and incentivize that kind of behavior. And in addition to working with the community, so there is a holistic approach and that we're not separated out into, you know, you have insurance, you have, you live here. It's more about when you take care of each other, everyone has a better place to live in a healthier environment. And so, you know, the, ultimately the outcome is to improve upon equity. And so it fits right into the JEDI theme, um, and I'm glad you let this data nerd participate. <laughs> so uh, thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, hearing Dr. Dagna talk about how they have been really strategic at identifying which questions should be asked by whom and in what setting. Because I think when we approach this work, oftentimes we, we sort of put that burden on one person to ask all the questions, and then the patient feels like, why, why are they asking me all these questions in this setting? And so I think, and maybe she could speak a little bit more to how they decided that, you know, when a patient checks into clinic, the check-in station person may ask one or two questions pertinent to that interaction. And then the nurse back in the clinic room may ask them a couple other questions pertinent to their interactions. And maybe the physician may come behind or the physician assistant or, or other um, clinician might come behind and ask other questions. It sort of just creates that more holistic way that this work, this, these questions are important. The social, social determinants of health are important to everyone. It shouldn't just be the task of one person um, asking these questions. So I really like that. Yeah, I would agree. I, th I thought that whole systematic approach to how um, your health system uh, did that piece around, it was almost like a Gimba approach about the right person in the right workflow asking the right questions. And again, the standardization of the questions and how important it is to align, to be able to even benchmark, making sure you had the validated tools mm -hmm. and you're, you're not coming up with your homegrown questions. You're using those validated and best practice questions that are aligning with those regulatory bodies like CMS, et cetera. So. That's correct. And, you know, it's, it, we gave out the ability to do the questioning in a way that choose what fits the situation. Um, and, you know, Gimba is absolutely right. We actually used uh, engineering students from the LSU main campus to help us do that. They're always teaching us about how we have ability to improve upon our processes and remove waste. And so a clinic may not have a social worker or a case manager. It may be a medical assistant and a doctor, especially in you know rural areas. So we wanted to make it possible for just the physician, just the MA. But if you're in a health system, you need to take advantage of the the resources that you have. And so we did break it up by you know there's several roles, and ideally, 
it, I would rather you get the question asked twice than not at all. And it's sometimes better if the person who is really good at answering the problem with the question, such as maybe financial insecurity with case management and addiction problems with social workers, you've already met the person who's going to open the door to the next solution. So I didn't want this just to be a screening process that you check in with. But that's also maybe the lonely time you may get asked a question. So those folks are in, in that circle as well. So thank you. Yeah, and I um, appreciate it how you laid it bare that your zip code is actually more so a determinant of your health than your genetic code. And speaking of codes, I really like that you introduced the Z codes as well because that adds a level of accountability because when you document it, you have to have a plan about it. And so with that, you, we can go back to the resources that I know you talked about they built into the um, electronic health record um, to make sure that we are meeting the needs of the patients, but in the very beginning, in the screening part, and then with the documentation of those Z codes that you have to actually follow up on that, on the social determinants of health. Yeah, I participate, we have a health leaders network and you know, routinely we review how's your hemoglobin A1C control for your panel of patients, meaning how good is your diabetic therapy for your patients, your blood pressure control. I'd like to see the Z codes be in that space that if they're documented, have we resolved food insecurity? Have we resolved homelessness? And we can report on that. We want to see how are you screening, and we want to see the outcomes related to the Z code. So there's a, a two-sided thing there. Did you get it in the, in the system? Do we know, and are we seeing the improvement with the practice of referring for therapy? And, and so I you know, really focus on what I call closing that loop of knowing the patient's getting to the things that we're recommending or prescribing and using the Z codes to communicate across platforms, insurance companies, the Joint Commission, Medicare, because until we put it all together, we're not going to realize the magnitude, and we know it's tremendous because of what we see in health outcomes. So I appreciate that, Nathan. I appreciate a provider wanting to use Z codes and ICD-10 <laughs> codes. Yeah. Sometimes that's, honest, a, that that's an uphill battle. Yeah, yeah, they're, the they're hidden yeah. in their way. That's the last letter, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's down there. Well, one of the things you also stress to everyone, and I, because I do the promoting interoperability at, within the same health system, Dr. Jagno works, um, you know, the right now, uh, the centers of Medicaid and Medicare are telling us, hey, voluntary calendar year 2023, that you're going to begin screening for these social determinants of health, which is, you know, it's the carrot and stick approach um, with how we have to do things, um, but it's mandatory in 2024. So, you know, people really need to understand the importance, and it's not for it to be impactful. It can't be just another check the box, which actually the Jedi thing with that whole move and this many people that are assigned in these positions was in some cases were just a check the box. Mm -hmm. And so what we don't want, right, as we integrate these things is that the social determinants of health side is just another check the box. For our Franciscan missionaries, Our Lady Health System, we have a marketing slogan now that say, we listen, we heal, which is perfect alignment with integrating social determinants of health and JEDI principles, because understanding the patient's story is what's going to help us get them to their optimal health. So really, your, your session was impactful, Dr. Jagno, really appreciated those pieces. Thank you, Charlo. I want to say when you, you mentioned Medicare, we had two great talks from the McClellan family yesterday, mm -hmm. yes. um, Kara and Frank. And I, I, I'm going to start using that term, power of the purse, mm -hmm. when you brought up Medicare. I, I, 
I've always used carrot and stick, and, and I think what his term actually brings a lot more meaning because of um, it, until you incentivize it, which is what he's saying is essentially payment, and it becomes a priority mm -hmm. from that aspect, it, it, then it's not important. So that, that switch, I think, is, is flipping, and I'm, I'm happy to see that because it'll be a lot easier when people see that there's a target and it's, it's this journey that we're taking now as opposed to not focusing on prevention, not focusing on health, but being reactionary in medicine, which has been the case for a long time. So, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Well, let's hear from you, Dr. Pilsen. Let's talk, why don't you summarize your kind of session part around that workforce diversity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So um, my part of the session was around workforce diversity, specifically in orthopedic surgery. And I think, you know, what better specialty to, to talk about workforce diversity than the one that struggles the most with it. So the session was sort of framed, um, starting with defining the problem, which I um, I took from the the vantage point of the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good being, you know, if you look at our trends over time regarding workforce diversity in orthopedic surgery, specifically related to gender diversity and racial and ethnic diversity, we have gotten better. There have been improvements over the years. Um, but the bad of uh, the situation is that we, we can do much better. We still struggle in terms of recruiting women and underrepresented minorities into the field and not only recruiting but retaining them in the field. Um, we remain consecutively, year after year, the least gender and ethnic, culturally ethnic and racially diverse specialty in all of medicine, which is not, um, which is not a proud thing uh, to say as a, as a gender and a racial ethnic minority in the field. Um, and what we've seen uh, is that recruitment efforts alone have not reversed that trend. And so there has to be something deeper. There has to be a lot of work done um, in our departments in our institutions to, to evaluate why this is happening and continue to work towards it. Um, one of the things we talked about in the work that we've done at Wake Forest and, and other places um, in this space is to really first taking um, a look in the mirror, being introspective and evaluating at a personal level, at a departmental level, and an institutional level where the blind spots are, where the opportunities are, um, who do we not have at the table, who do we not have in our departments, and who do we need to be more strategic about um, welcoming in and figuring out why those people aren't there. Um, it takes asking hard questions, having hard conversations. Um, you know, one of the, the quotes that I mentioned during the session that I heard recently um, is nothing about us without us, and so it, it takes bringing those stakeholders to the table, working alongside them and with them, supporting them um, to figure out how we get uh, to more equity in this space. But I think it also takes stakeholders from both groups. We talked about how it's so important that um, the people that lead these efforts in our department, our institutions, are leading them alongside and with um, majority members of our departments and, and institutions, because it takes both, it takes both um, together. Um, and then after I, we identify those champions of this work, uh, it's important to equip them to to help them both from a resource stand, standpoint, financially and other resources, administrative support, and also um, from an educational standpoint. You know, you mentioned the statistics at the beginning of the podcast, and you know, even as a, a gender and a racial ethnic minority in my field, I'm not an expert. I didn't have, I don't have a degree in this. I, I do have my lived experiences, but there are blind spots that I have even in this work and it's important to continue to educate and provide resources to those of us who are in this work to make sure we're doing it effectively and we're doing it the right way. 
You know, one of the things um, you mentioned in your session was around authority and accountability. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and when you're looking at your program and stuff, how does that get, how do you manifest that piece or how does that work? Yeah, so I, I kind of, um, not to skip ahead, it brings up one of the points that Dathion mentioned um, in his talk is that, you know, when, when a problem is identified and someone asks for your help to change it, you kind of have to be upfront with saying, you know, what authority do I have to change this? Is, are you expecting a recommendation or a suggestion? Or are you expecting me to give action items that we have to say, these are the, this is the expectation, this is the new expectation that we're going to hold you accountable to, and these are the consequences if those expectations aren't met. And not in a punitive way, right? This is not meant to, to penalize folks for not doing it. This is meant to reach out and educate people on the importance, and hopefully they, they get the importance of it and say, this is, this is why this work is important, and this is how we're going to, um, to strategize about making sure we do this in an actionable way that we can show on the backside that we're, we're moving the needle, um, and this is how we expect you to, to help us, and this is how we're going to come back and follow up on that and making sure that we're meeting these, um, these metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Sturgis, Dr. Jagno, do you have some? Yeah, so I appreciate how you use real-world examples of the women chairs across America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was less than a dozen, right? I think The notable nine. Yeah, notable <laughs> nine, exactly. And I really, so that leads me to, you know, looking at when you was talking about the progress toward what would it take to get the, to parity was 217 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Can you reflect on like, what are some of the current barriers that is causing us to wait two centuries uh, in order for us to reach some type of parity? Oh, I wish I had the magic sauce uh, <laughs> <laughs> to answer that question. I think we're all asking ourselves that question. I think in orthopedics, it's a lot. I think, for one, it's the culture. I think, you know, it's the perception. You know, a few of the studies that I presented talked about the perception of medical students looking at the buffet table of all medical specialties and and sort of, you know, commenting on which specialties they feel are more or less welcoming to underrepresented minorities, to women, et cetera. And orthopedics has consistently been one of those fields that medical students have said is less welcoming. I don't know if it's the surgical culture, um, which I, you know, I think some of the other specialties that were mentioned as less welcoming were also surgical procedurally uh, based um, fields as well. Um, And I think a lot of it gets into the importance of um, increasing programs in the pathway and the pipeline, reaching students early, showing them folks that look like them, showing them some, a woman or underrepresented uh, person or, um, or someone from their community that they can say, wow, this is a possibility for me. I would have never entertained this before because when I see every orthopedic surgeon on TV or um, you know, and the orthopedic surgeons that I visited as a child, they're all white males and I just didn't see myself in that role. So I think some of it is that, um, you know, I think uh, for for some, the barriers are, you know, related to, um, you know, the, the burden of the, what, I, what I've heard call oftentimes the, um, the citizenship task of th- that oftentimes uh, minority and women um, members of our faculty cohorts are asked to bear. Um, and, and oftentimes it's because we have passions for them, and oftentimes it's because they're tokenized to do the work. Um, but but sometimes that doesn't leave room for climbing sort of the academic ladder into roles like leadership roles, such as chair roles and vice chair roles that 
um, where where all the decisions are made, you know. And so I think it's multifactorial, certainly. But but yeah, the notable nine, I think, you know, it's, it's a fantastic group of of women who are shattering that glass ceiling in our field. Thank you. Yeah, I I mean, it's I knew that there was a a difference in. Um, the specialty itself is clearly at the top of not having diversity. That, because, mm -hmm. like you said, I, I don't think I've met an orthopedic surgeon who wasn't a white male <laughs> practicing until I came here, where it was refreshing to see mm -hmm. so many orthopedic surgeons who weren't. Not to say that you know mm -hmm. I want to trash our white male population because <laughs> I have a lot of good friends who are doctors out there. But I think the the main point I learned in connection with your um, sort of reviewing how this needs to make progress and hopefully not take 217 years to get there was the questioning that the video we saw of uh, Supreme Court Justice Kagan, should your health care practice in the community reflect the diversity of the community? Mm -hmm. And um, it, all along, yes, I'm, I think that, but she said it so eloquently. And as I look across our patient base, because I'm a critical care doctor, so I meet folks who are going to ultimately go for amputation the next morning mm -hmm. due to the diabetic foot mm -hmm. and the sepsis that's now endangering their lives. And that has a huge um, asymmetric look in the data for African Americans mm -hmm. and, and, and the comorbidities that go with that. Uh, so there's that piece of knowing and coming from uh, an understanding of your population, so you you need to have folks who reflect it. Mm -hmm. And then there was uh, another discussion that um, you know you've met some of these orthopedic surgeons, and no offense, but they do like to operate. And mm -hmm. so there's not always that I'm <laughs> um, coming into examining you and and actually laying hands mm -hmm. and having a relationship. There is a bit of sterility to it, which I I don't see that whenever there is. A connection, mm -hmm. and and so I, I appreciate you highlighting the the lack of diversity and the challenge because that's I think is the screening is the first step into it needs to be fixed so that we take better care of our patients, and uh, the nothing about me without me I first heard with Don Burrock and mm -hmm. he was I think his wife was the guidance for him doing IHI because she had a condition that he writes about and it felt like everything was being performed in silos, they were mm -hmm. making decisions about her, mm -hmm. without her, and he was furious, and he was, you know, I think, pediatrician, and so he was on faculty where that practice was happening at with someone he cared for, mm -hmm. and so it, it makes perfect sense to put it into this because it's on both sides now. It's about, you know, making sure that the physician side of it is represented, and, and you're not making decisions not to take folks into that specialty without the clarity of why are you making these decisions mm -hmm. and accountability. So um, from a provider, it's sort of both sides of the, the patient should be included, but also the team and their, their journey to being able to provide health care. It's the same transparency that we need to shorten that 217-year time frame down to what I would like to see in my lifetime. Yeah. And, and that's a pretty short time frame, so yeah. um, we have a lot of work to do. You know, you mentioned... Um, I heard you say about tokenized and then, you know, I was thinking about the undue burden, like you're, you know, when you want to just practice, but you have to take on so many other strength roles, right, to see the good work happen, right, so that it doesn't take 217 years. So there's really a lot that's being asked 
of both minority and genders to be able to see you know, next generations of, of moving up at a faster pace to be able to you know, do the career that they wanted and not have the same obstacles and hurdles. So I think there's a level of recognition that has to go on right now, you all for as being really giants because you're you're really trying to, you know, break down those barriers. But, you know, you didn't necessarily ask for it either. Like, right, you want to maybe go home at the end of the day and or be the, you know, football team orthopod or whatever it, you know, not necessarily have to be the the warrior, right, the whole time to fight the good fight. And so I think there is a recognition about that undue burden that you have to do to see this good work happen. So, again, I would like to just applaud that piece for both of you, all of you. Um, so Dr. Um, Sturge is excited <coughs> because you led, I think you gave the, the group uh, so many great tools and a framework mm-hmm from the things that you've done at UW, and I really uh, appreciate that. Could you share about some of that framework and the tools? Yeah, exactly. Um, so um, I ended the, the panel by talking about institutional and organizational change. And before we even get into that, we have to really do a rebranding and a paradigm shift from where we don't view diversity as a risk, but we view it as a strength and we view it as beautiful. And so I always use that term because I mentioned yesterday that this is not only hard work, it's heart work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you just mentioned sometimes with the emotional exhaustion that comes with that. There have been many times that I've gone home and I just crash on the couch and my partner just understands that it's been a day, it's been a week, it's been a year. Um, But, you know, with that, I want to offer some tools. Um, We had talked, had so many great discussions that I want people to be able to take this back to their organizations. So at the policy level is where we have the most sweeping change. So that's in the public public health sphere, in the medical sphere, in our government. So when you affect system level policy, um, then you are able to um, see more um, results. However, when we are looking at these policies, we want to make sure we use what I call a Jedi lens. So our justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, but I also add in anti-racism. A lot of organizations now have made claims toward becoming um, anti-racist organizations. However, to become anti-racist, we also have to center and discuss race. So what we've been doing is looking at our policies through um, by using an equity impact tool. And what the impact tool does is just helps us really break down the policy and look, who is it affecting? Who needs to be at the table? What voices are we missing? When we come with a plan, what actually could be the harm that we do um, with this plan. So what are your alternative approaches to this? And then it's measuring it. Um, it's, you know, you have to always have a loop of quality improvement. So I also offered a DEI toolkit that um, the Physician Assistant Education Association's um, Diversity and Inclusion Mission Advancement Commission had developed. And it just is six steps of a quality improvement loop. You know, starting with your goals and objectives, then coming up with a strategy implementing it, assessing it, reporting out, and then looking to see what worked and what didn't. And you can always back up and you can always continue the loop. And then lastly, I offered a um, framework by um, Dr. Carl Frizzell and his team that looked at um, how we cultivate our anti-racist environment by offering strategies and solutions. So with that, it really, again, targeted at the top, the leadership structure. 
What's the racial composition there? What voices are there? Do you have buy-in? Because these are the people that are yielding and wielding power. Um, also, I highlighted the culture and climate of your organization, of your institution. So it's very important to most likely have a third party come in to do some type of climate screen and then report out so that we can reflect and try to make positive changes um, in that regard. And then also I focused on admissions processes too because we talked about the disparities when it comes to race discordance or come to gender, sexual and gender minority, all of these different dimensions of diversity. And what are we doing to block this representation? And so how can we kick the door open and look at our uh, applicants holistically, because honestly, this is where the gatekeeping is. And so we'll never have a diverse, um, a diverse medical workforce if the schools are not admitting these students. But then I want to go a step further is when you admit, how do you include, how do you retain? So again, we go back to sometimes there's onlys. And then that leads to tokenism, that leads to social isolation, that leads to academic um, um, performance that is not reflective of their strengths. And then that perpetuates the myth of diversity is a risk. Actually, it was a, it's a social thing. It's, it's a not inclusive. So most times it's just non-academic. So I just wanted to offer all these tools and then actually implement some real-world situations so that um, our attendees could, could really view it through the lens of JEDI and then take this back to their organizations and try to implement it. I mean, we've already brought it up, but I, I want to highlight what uh, the quote is, do I have the authority to make change? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, when I, all of the tools I think were amazing. That is a, what I took away is the key message. Um, because I, I sit on the DEI community work group and I, I participate in it, but I've, you know, I've listened to some of these other podcasts about, uh, you know, the, the movement, the why of what is this, this journey we're going on, and, and I'm always curious about the, the what and the how. Mm -hmm. And so a lot about that was delineated in your talk, which I appreciate, but very specifically, DEI work groups, um, projects, charters, really shouldn't just sit out here in DEI. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's an organizational mm -hmm. change. So what is your strategy? Oh, we have a brand new DEI work group. That's not a strategy. Right. That's a club, right? And and so, because I, I, on the quality side, when I work, it takes effort and commitment, and it takes intentionality mm -hmm. to make changes in the right direction. And this is no different. Mm -hmm. There has to be the ability and the support behind the leadership, because some of the changes are hard, because you're sort of peeling back layers of history and starting over. Mm -hmm. And and so I I really appreciate you saying that. It sounds like. You know, that's the right thing to go into. We would like for you guys to improve equity at our institution. Okay, what authority do I have? Yours? You know, and because when the, the, the hiccups come, there has to be some decision making. Mm -hmm. And um, without that, you're, you're not going to make the progress, or I won't make the progress, we, mm -hmm. without that ability to say, no, this is the way we're going, in the Jedi way. Mm -hmm. So thank you, and I uh, appreciate mm -hmm. all the tools. I, I have them uh, screenshotted, and I'm uh, <laughs> excited to take them back home. Yeah, I, I always uh, also, to piggyback on that, and likewise agree that um, you mentioned during the session, you know, we talked about how um, oftentimes people will call or email or text or ask you for your help. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think part of that boundary creation about not over-exhausting ourselves in this work is being able to say, 
here's a framework, here's a toolkit. You take it back and you do the work mm -hmm. that I've given you a roadmap um, and, and now you have it. But I think we have to really, um, you know, it's not that we don't want to help people, but it, that it, there is a lot of hard work in it. It's really hard for me to come into your institution or your department and do all the work and just tell you what to do. You have to sort of do some of that work on your own, and here's a framework to do it. And I really, um, I really liked uh, the way that you delivered that. Um, and, and also love the, this is hard work, but it's also hard work. Um, absolutely filled up. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, there were two things that I particularly took away around um, the, the climate check. You mm -hmm. know, I think so many people are intimidated about that piece. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like standing in front of a mirror and like, I really mm -hmm. don't want anyone to, to see or, or the, the, the bad side. And I think people look at that as a, who it, is going to be punitive. Like there, someone's going to say something about me or the organization and it's not going to be a positive reflection. Instead of looking at it, and of course, if that's the way it's intended to be, let's look at it as a mirror and let's be reflective and let's be open-minded mm -hmm. so that we can peel the onion back mm -hmm. and then begin to walk forward and make good change. And I think some people don't even start with that check because they don't want to look. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like one of the biggest things. But in, and really until we peel the onion, we, we change the way we see things and where your goal is to be reflective. Mm -hmm. It's not to be perfect. It's like, it's I know I'm going to yeah. mess up. Let me think about what I just did and how I just did it so I can do it better, mm -hmm. right? And I, you gave several different, you know, lived experiences, and you did a great job with that to the audience to help them see that piece. The other thing I took away was around when you talked about the one person that was in the program mm. and you were asking him, how was he doing? And he's like, I'm okay. And you're like, no, how are you doing? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's that really that call to action. And again, it, it's, it's heart work mm -hmm. because it's, this is a call to action. We need to be mentors to others. And inclusivity means that that person has a sense of belonging. And mm -hmm. Dr. Jagner, you mentioned about, well, this is the, it's a club, right? Unless, it's a, unless this is the work, it's just a club versus how do we help people feel that they belong. It's not that I have to look like you, but there's something we have in common. Like, you know, Dr. Sturges and I, we already know we have this in common because we've talked and we both live in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. You know, we live there. So we have some, some similar cultures, but we don't look anything alike. We're not the same race. We're not the same gender, but I can give this guy a big old Louisiana hug. But we took the time <laughs> to know about each other and wanted each other to belong, right, mm -hmm. in our space. So I think that's where some of that hard work has to go. And people have to understand you have to step up and be a mentor. You know, the think about the STEM things and the high schoolers. We have to really be able to let them know that there's other people out there that have walked your journey and that you can be part of this and we I'm here to help you. It's not just rah, rah. It's like really be there to help, it's you know, it's rare for me to turn someone down that needs a mentor in their whether it's in their academic space because the challenge and the fear and all that, and especially I seek out now opportunities when that person doesn't look like me. 
mm-hmm. right? Because I know that their journey has been harder. And um, so I think that there's a call to action with that piece. Yeah. And just lastly, I'll say, um, I mentioned yesterday, I always approach my work with a what I call a, a spirit of inquiry or a spirit of curiosity. I think we should always remain curious mm-hmm. and ask questions. How do how does someone belong, if you've never asked them, what does it take for them to feel like they belong? Uh, you know, it's not that people have to teach you how to do your job, but people do like to teach you about themselves mm-hmm. and talk about their culture and talk about their lived experience. So you, if you just approach this with a curious spirit, then I think that you will be more successful. I do feel like my work has been successful because I do approach it from a curiosity standpoint. Even in the climate surveys, that's a curious inquiry of what's going on here. And then we talk about it, debrief. And then if we have to have reconciling moments, that allows space and and opportunity for that to happen too. Because if you never knew that, it would never happen and things would continue to brew under the current until there's a tsunami. Yes, yes. Does anyone have any additional um, feedback or any last thoughts? I just really appreciate the um, movements like caucus. Um, I want to echo that this is my first time participating too, not my last time at all. Um, the the sessions, including ours, um, our Jedi session, have been great. There's, they've been speaking truth to power. Um, I do this work day in, day out, but I will say this is top notch at the topics and the transparency. Um, that has occurred in one day. <laughs> so I, I would just say I appreciate your caucus, and I'm going to spread the word, and I will be back as well. Awesome, yeah. awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. This is uh, my second time um, coming. The first time I knew nothing about it as well. was um, I actually drove um, the first time I came from North Carolina five hours, and on the ride back I listened to about 13 podcasts <laughs> <laughs> on my drive home and was just really blown away by the content of the podcast, the content of the talk. And really, you know, I, I thank, thank you for, um, for shouting us all out on LinkedIn. And what I reposted was that, you know, this is a conference that really um, refills you. The work that you do can be depleting, but this is a conference that really refills you back up. Yes, I enjoyed it as well, and um, I, and you charged us to have a, a call to action, and so the the thing that I would say is it, it's really I guess ironic or a, a weird uh, coincidence, but a week ago I was speaking to a group of business um, I guess leaders in a community Lafayette, Louisiana, and then this these past two days, so Wednesday before I flew in, I got to speak to high school students about STEM. And uh, I learn more when I do these things than, than I think I can contribute. Um, but the last question to us was, what, what do you recommend to the folks who is listening to essentially the same topic? And I would ask that you know everyone, uh, whether you literally or figuratively have a sidewalk, that is your space that you can change. And so if you have a business and you have folks that work for you, be curious about you know, the question, how are you doing? Um, and in you know, my space, healthcare is not the only place to address social determinants. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have workforces that can be healthier if there isn't a plan to make your workforce healthier from the top down. And, and so within your church, within your community, um, it, just know that the problems are there and if you're curious and you're passionate towards fixing these, you can just pick something and go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fix this space, this part of the sidewalk around my house that I control and I think over and over, thousands of times if that's done, 
we're, we're going to move the needle. Um, it doesn't take, you know, a major action plan to turn everything over. It takes a bunch of folks to ask a few questions and do a few things in the right direction. So um, I really appreciate the opportunity because, you know, with the leaders at this table, the impact that we can make is stretched beyond our sidewalk through these these channels. And, uh, Charla, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And, and I just want to thank you all. And I, I do know, too, that the caucus, what it does is it really allows you to kind of, like, reload, recharge, reconnect, and, you know, as being a piece of the puzzle, knowing where you fit to make the difference. So really excited, um, even thinking about next year. So it's this has been a great discussion. We're uh, about the end of our time today. I want to thank you, Dr. Jagno, Dr. Pilsen, Dr. Sturgis, for joining us today, and we hope we'll, you know, be able to do this again soon on another podcast. Just on a quick note to our listeners, you will be able to access all the plenary presentations on our website in the coming weeks at www.movementislifecaucus.com. And if you like the episode today, please let your friends and colleagues know about it. Till next time on the Health Disparities Podcast, I'm Dr. Charlotte Johnson saying thanks for listening and be safe and be well. <laughs>